Welcome, friends. Welcome to the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Kelly Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No sales from the front ever, and no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. What I'm talking about is that guru bullshit, you know? But wait, order now. RDI is also this podcast where multiple times a week I sit down with interesting people and we produce interesting shows for your entertainment and hopefully education. And I know I ask every time, but if I don't ask, you guys don't do it. And I need your help. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor. One of the biggest things you can do for me right now is to rate and review on iTunes. Need a lot more of those. Really appreciate it. A bunch you have. I think we're up to 48. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. Also, if you can share this podcast. Remember, this is if you enjoy it, share this podcast uh, across social media and the internet. And um, for those of you who do, I really appreciate it. If you do it from the Renegade Detroit Investor page or one of my other podcast partners page, we can see it and then we can say thank you. Um, but I know a bunch of you do it anyway, and I catch you every now and again. Thank you. If I, if I don't say thank you, I didn't see it, but I do thank everyone who does it. All right. So I really do appreciate it. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegadedroitinvestors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. Go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. Legal disclaimer. Don't blame me. It's a fucked up world we live in, man. My feelings. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer, an attorney, and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right, time for the Renegade Detroit Investors Show Quote, where I try and pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast and perhaps, and hopefully, your week. This week's quote, nobody who ever gave his best regretted it. George Halas, hope I said his last name right. Nobody who ever gave his best regretted it. George Halas. And this is also a Merry Christmas podcast, you Fucking investor savages. Uh, this is the end of your 2016, man. Was it good? Yeah, hit all your goals. You destroy it. You meet it halfway. You disappointed. Where are you at? Let me know. Um, also, I'm going to put a link in this. Last year, right around this time, I believe it was episode 22 of the Renegade Joy Investors podcast, where Steve Londo and I sat down, laid out some plans, talked about habits and goals and things you could do. And uh, I got to say, Overall, I'm pretty happy with my 2016. So the podcast grew. It was just amazing how fast it grew. And I hope we can do that again in 2017. Uh, my real estate business is finally starting to take off on the realtor side. I've been out there wholesaling on my own now since uh, August. Happy about that. Got a little call center action going. Anybody looking uh, to hire a little call center? You know, we can set some appointments for you. I'm helping a lot of people out. That's been a lot of fun. It's been fun watching some of these young uh, guys and gals come in not knowing anything and go out and get their first couple of deals, which is uh, pretty awesome. And the formatting changes we made uh, earlier this year, or might have been 
Oh, it might have been at the tail end of 2015 or the beginning of 2016. I can't remember. With our new format change where we focus on deals and networking and get rid of all the other bullshit. I got to say, overall, it's been a rough year. It's been a hard year. Lots of work. But amazingly enough, all that work does pay off. So some things I'm looking at for 2017 that I need to do a lot better is I need to leverage my time a lot better. I think that's uh, that's something I need to spend a lot of time on. And I'm... Um, also, I, I think I did mention that in the first part. That's why I'm reading the one thing, too. I'm a little tired, a little exhausted, got some change coming in my life. So I went to the one thing, and uh, Garrett reached out to me. Um, Garrett Horton reached out to me. He's going to help me with some standard operating procedures. So that's another reason I do the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Garrett. Um, I'll see you next week, and I appreciate your guys' help, too, because I, kn- I know this helps you, and I really help. I really like when you guys help me, too, So guys and gals. So thank you. I appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. So last week we finished at the end of chapter 15, and now we are in chapter 16, which for those following along is page 175 of The One Thing by Gary Keller. Take a little coffee break here. Mm, Get you some coffee. Speaking of which, have you heard of alwaysbrewingdetroit.com? What a great local uh, coffee shop. Grand River and Southfield um, in Northwest Detroit. Check it out, man. Alwaysbringdetroit.com. All right, guys, ready? You got your book out? Page 1 to 75, Chapter 16, The Three Commitments. Achieving extraordinary results through time blocking requires three commitments. First, you must adopt the mindset of someone seeking mastery. Mastery is a commitment to becoming your best. So to achieve extraordinary results, you must embrace the extraordinary effort it represents. Second, you must continually seek the very best ways of doing things. Nothing is more futile than doing your best using an approach that can't deliver results equal to your effort. And last, you must be willing to be held accountable to do everything you can to achieve your one thing. Uh, Live these commitments and you give yourself a fighting chance to experience extraordinary. The three commitments to your one thing. Number one, follow the path of mastery. I'm going to highlight this. I don't know. You you know, don't highlight just because I'm highlighting it. If it doesn't speak to you, don't highlight it. Highlight the parts that do speak to you. But the point of doing this is to improve, right? So number one, follow the path of mastery. Number two, move from E to P. Number three, live the accountability cycle. Number one, follow the path of mastery. Mastery isn't a word we often hear anymore, but it is as critical as ever to achieving extraordinary results. As intimidating as it might initially seem, when you can see mastery as a path you go down instead of a destination you arrive at, it starts to feel accessible and attainable. Most assume mastery is an end result, but at its core, mastery is a way of thinking, a way of acting, and a journey you experience. When what you've chosen to master is the right thing, then pursuing mastery of it will make everything else you do either easier or no longer necessary. That's why you choose to master. That's why what you choose to master matters. Mastery plays a key role in your domino run. I believe the healthy view of mastery means giving the best you have to become the best you can be at your most important work. The path is one of an apprentice learning and relearning the basics of a never-ending journey, of greater experience and expertise. Think of it this way. At some point, white belts training to advance know the same basic karate moves black belts know. 
They simply haven't practiced enough to be able to do them as well. The creativity you see at black belt comes from mastery of white belt fundamentals. Since there's always another level to learn, mastery actually means you're a master at what you know and an apprentice of what you don't. In other words, what we become masters of what is behind us and apprentices for what is ahead. This is why mastery is a journey. Alex von Van Halen has said that when he would go out at night with his brother Eddie, uh, his brother Eddie would be sitting on his bed practicing the guitar. And when he came home many hours later, Eddie would be in the same place still practicing. That's the journey of mastery. It never ends. In 1993, psychologist Kay Anders Erickson published The Role of Deliberate Practice in the Acquisition of Expert Performance in the Journal of Psychological Review. Sounds like a, a page turner there. As the benchmark for understanding mastery, this article debunked the idea that an expert performer was gifted, a natural, or even a prodigy. Erickson essentially gave us our first real insights into mastery and birthed the idea of the 10,000-hour rule. His research identified a common pattern of regular and deliberate practice over the course of years in elite performers that made them what they were, elite. In one study, elite violinists had separated themselves from all others by each accumulating more than 10,000 hours of practice by age 20, thus the rule. Many elite performers complete their journey in about 10 years, which, if you do the math, is an average of about three hours of deliberate practice a day, every day, 365 days a year. Now, if your one thing relates to work and you put in 250 work days a year, five days a week for 50 weeks, to keep pace on your mastery journey, you'll need to average four hours a day. Sound familiar? It's not a random number. They're talking about the four hours from the previous chapter. That's the amount of time you need to time block everything every day for your one thing. All right, I'm going to go back in four days. What do you guys highlight when we do this? Just out of case, just out of curiosity. It's not a random number. Four hours a day. That's why I'm trying to get up to four hours a day of prospecting. More than anything else, expertise tracks with hours invested. Michelangelo once said, I'm going to highlight that. More than anything else, expertise tracks with hours invested. Michelangelo once said, if people knew how hard I had to work to gain my mastery wouldn't seem wonderful at all. His point was obvious. Time on task over time eventually beats talent every time. Ooh, I think there's going to be lots of highlighting in this chapter. Time on task over time eventually beats talent every time. I'd say you can book that, but actually you should block it. When you commit to time block your one thing, make sure you're, you approach it with a mastery mentality. This will give you the best opportunity to be the most productive you can be and ultimately the best you can become. And here's what's interesting. The more productive you are, the more likely you are to receive several additional payoffs you would otherwise have missed. The pursuit of mastery bears gifts. As you progress along the path of mastery, both your self-confidence and your success competence will grow. You'll make a discovery. The path of mastery is not so different from one pursuit to the next. What might pleasantly surprise you is how giving yourself over to mastering one thing serves as a platform for and speeds up the process of doing other things. Knowledge begets knowledge and skills build on skills. It's what makes future dominoes fall more easily. Hmm. Should I just highlight this whole chapter? 
Mastery is a pursuit that keeps giving because it's a path that never ends. In his landmark book, Mastery, George Leonard tells the story of Jigoro Kano. I hope I spelled that right. The founder of judo. According to legend, Kano approached death. He called his students around him and asked to be buried in his white belt. The symbolism wasn't lost. The highest-ranking martial artist of his discipline embraced the emblem of the beginner for his life and beyond, because to him, the journey of the successful lifelong learner was never over. Time blocking is essential to mastery, and mastery is essential to time blocking. They go hand in hand. When you do one, you do the other. Number two, move from E to P. When coaching top performers, I often ask, are you doing this simply to do the best you can do, or are you doing this to do the best it can be done? Although it's not meant to be a trick question, it trips people up anyway. Many realize that although they're giving their best effort, they aren't doing the best that could be done because they aren't willing to change what they are doing. The path of of mastering something is a combination of not only doing the best you can do at it, but also doing it the best it can be done. I like that. I think I have a problem with that. Well, I'm human. I think we all have a problem with that, but it speaks to me right now. Continually improving how you do something is critical to getting the most from time blocking. It's called moving from E to P. When we roll out of bed in the morning and start uh, tracking the day, or I'm sorry, when when we roll out of bed in the morning and start tackling the day, we do so in one of two ways, entrepreneurial E or purposeful P. Entrepreneurial is our natural approach. It's seeing something we want to do or that needs to be done and racing off to do it with enthusiasm, energy, and our natural abilities. No matter the task, all natural abilities has uh, all natural ability has a ceiling of achievement, a level of productivity, and success that eventually tops out. Although this varies from person to person and task to task, everybody in life has a natural ceiling for everything. Give some people a hammer and they're an instant carpenter. Give one to me and I'm all thumbs. In other words, some people can naturally use a hammer extremely well with minimal instruction or practice, but there are others like me who hit their ceiling of achievement the moment they're holding one. If the outcome of your efforts is acceptable at whatever level of achievement you reach, then you high five and move on. But when you're going about your one thing, any ceiling of achievement must be challenged and this requires a different approach, a purposeful approach. Highly productive people don't accept the limitations of their natural approach as the final word on their success. When they hit a ceiling of achievement, they look for new models and systems, better ways to do things to push them through. They pause just long enough to examine their options, they pick the best one, and then they're right back at it. Ask and eat to cut some firewood, an entrepreneurial person would likely shoulder an axe and head straight for the woods. On the other hand, the purposeful person might ask, where can I get a chainsaw? With a P mindset, you can achieve breakthroughs and accomplish things far beyond your natural abilities. You must simply be willing to do whatever it takes. You can't put your limit, you can't put limits on what you'll do. You have to be open to new ideas and new ways of doing things if you want breakthroughs in your life. As a travel, as you travel the path of mastery, you'll find yourself continually challenged to do new things. The purposeful person follows the simple rule that a different result requires doing something different. Make this your mantra and breakthroughs become possible. Too many people reach a level where their performance is good enough and then stop working on getting better. People on the path to mastery avoid this by continually upping their goal, challenging themselves to break through. 
their current ceiling and staying the Forever Apprentice. I like that. Forever Apprentice. For as long as we breathe anyway, right? It's what writer and memory champion Joshua Four dubbed the OK Plateau. He illustrated it with typing. If practice time were all that mattered over over the course of our professional careers, with the millions of memos and emails we type, we all progress from the lowly chicken pack to 100 words a minute. But that doesn't happen. We reach a level of skill we deem to be acceptable and then uh, simply switch off the learning. We go on automatic pilot and hit one of the most common ceilings of achievement. We hit the OK Plateau. When you're in search of extraordinary results, accepting an OK Plateau or any other ceiling of achievement isn't OK when it applies to your one thing. When you want to break through plateaus and ceilings, there is only one approach, P. In business and in life, we all start off entrepreneurially. We go after something with our current level of abilities, energy, knowledge, and effort. In short, everything that comes easily. Approach things within, with E is comfortable because it feels natural. It's who we currently are and how we currently like to do things. It's also limiting. I'm feeling this right now. I have a lot of energy. So whenever I have a challenge in life, I just throw more energy at it. But I don't have unlimited energy. And I think I found the end of that. Back to the book. When E is our only approach, we create artificial limits to what we can achieve and who we can become. If we tackle something we all call or with all E and then hit a ceiling of achievement, we simply bounce up against it over and over and over. This continues until we just can't take the disappointment anymore, become resigned to this being the only outcome we can ever have, and eventually seek out greener pastures elsewhere. When we think we've maxed out our potential in a situation, starting us over is how we think we'll get ahead. The problem is this becomes a vicious cycle of taking on the next new thing with renewed enthusiasm, energy, natural ability, effort, until another ceiling is hit and disappointment and resignation set in once again. And then it's on to, you guessed it, the next greener pasture. Bring P to the same uh, same ceiling and things look different. The purposeful approach says, I'm still committed to growing, so what are my options? You then use the focusing question to narrow those choices down to the next thing you should do. It could be to follow a new model, get a new system, or both. But be prepared. Implementing these may require new thinking, new skills, and even new relationships. Probably none of this will feel natural at first. That's okay. Being purposeful is often about doing what comes unnaturally, but when you're committed to achieving extraordinary results, you simply do whatever it takes anyway. When you've done the best you can do, but are certain the results aren't the best they can be, get out of E and into P. Look for the better, for the better models and systems, the ways that can take you further. They adopt new, then adopt new thinking, new skills, and new relationships to help you put them to action. Become purposeful during your time block and unlock your potential. Number three, live the accountability cycle. There is an undeniable connection between what you do and what you get. Actions determine outcomes and outcomes inform actions. Be accountable and this feedback loop is how you discover the things you must do to achieve extraordinary results. That's why your final commitment is to live the accountability cycle of results. Take, taking complete ownership of your outcomes by holding no one but yourself responsible for them is the most powerful thing you can do to drive your success. I am highlighting that. That's, 
Another great book I'd like to read with you guys. Um, I've read a couple times, but I just can't seem to get enough of is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And they talk about this all the time. As such, accountability is most likely the most important of the three commitments. Without it, your journey down the path of mastery will be cut short the moment you encounter a challenge. Without it, you won't figure out how to break through the ceilings of achievement you'll hit along the way. Accountable people absorb setbacks and keep going. Accountable people persevere through problems and keep pushing forward. Accountable people are results-oriented and never defend actions, skill levels, models, systems, or relationships that just aren't getting the job done. They bring their best to whatever it takes without restriction. You know, I used to do this shit all the time. You know, that person, you know, well, he means well. He tries real hard. I had so many excuses for myself and other people on my team, and I don't do any of that shit anymore. Also on a much better team. They bring whatever they bring their best to whatever it takes without reservation. Accountable people achieve results others only dream of. When life happens, you can either you can be either the author of your life or the victim of it. Those are your only two choices, accountable or unaccountable. This may sound harsh, but it's true. Every day we choose one approach or the other and the consequences follow us forever. To illustrate the difference, consider the tale of two managers of two competing businesses who both experience a sudden shift in the market. One month, there is a continuous line of customers stretching out the door. The next, no one shows up. How each manager responds makes all the difference. The accountable manager immediately tunes in. What's happening here? She investigates exactly what she's up against. The other manager refuses to acknowledge what's happening. It's a blip, a glitch, an anomaly. He shrugs it off simply as a bad month. Meanwhile, the accountable uh, manager, uh, having discovered how a competitor is grabbing market share, bites the bullet and says, so this is the way it is, and takes ownership of the problem. If it's to be, it's up to me, she thinks. Highlighting that. Being willing to address reality head on gives her a huge edge. It puts her in a position to start thinking about what she can do differently. The other manager keeps fighting reality. He comes up with an alternative view, placing responsibility elsewhere. That's not how I see it, he counters. If people in the company would just do their jobs, we wouldn't have problems like this. Man, I work with so many people like this. It's like my kryptonite now. Back to the book. The accountable manager looks for solutions. More important, she assumes she's part of the solution. What can I do? The moment she finds the right tactic, she acts. Circumstances won't change by themselves, she thinks. So let's get on with it. I love this. I think I'm just right there, though. Circumstances won't change by themselves. The other manager, having blamed everyone else, now excuses himself altogether. It's not my job, he declares, and settles into, how many times you heard that? It's not my job. And settles into hoping things change for the better. Told in this way, the difference is pretty stark, isn't it? One is actively trying to author her destiny. The other is simply along for the ride. One is acting accountable. The other is being a victim. One will change the outcome. One won't. Granted, victim is a tough word. Please know that I'm describing the attitude, not the person. Though if kept up long enough, these could become one and the same. No one is a born victim. It's simply an attitude or an approach. But if allowed to persist, the cycle can becomes a habit. The opposite is also true. Anyone can be accountable anytime. 
And the more you choose the cycle of accountability, the more likely it is to become your automatic answer to any adversity. Highly successful people are clear about their role in the events of their life. They don't fear reality. They seek it, acknowledge it, and own it. Highlighting that. I would even add, no matter how bitter the pill, there's a good podcast coming at some point in time. Back to the book. They know this is the only way to uncover new solutions, apply them, and experience a different reality. So they take responsibility and run with it. They see outcomes as information they could use to frame better actions to get better outcomes. It's a cycle they understand and use to achieve extraordinary results. One of the fastest ways to bring accountability to your life is to find an accountability partner. Accountability can come from a mentor, a peer, or in its highest form, a coach. Whatever the case, it's critical that you acquire an accountability relationship and give your partner license to lay out the honest truth. An accountability partner isn't a cheerleader, although he can lift you up. An accountability partner provides frank, objective feedback on your performance, creates an ongoing expectation for productive progress, and can provide critical brainstorming or even expertise when needed. As for me, a coach or mentor is the best choice for an accountability partner. Although a peer or friend can absolutely help you see things you may not see, ongoing accountability is best provided by someone to whom you agree to be truly accountable. When that's the nature of the relationship, the best results occur. I think what he's talking about is just having one kind of relationship. I don't know, maybe not. Earlier, I discussed Dr. Gail Matthews' research that individuals with written goals were 39.5% more likely to succeed. But there's more to the story. Individuals who wrote their goals and sent progress reports to friends were 76.7% more likely to achieve them. As effective as writing down your goals can be, simply sharing your progress towards your goals with someone regularly, even just a friend, makes you almost twice as effective. Accountability works. That's amazing. Erickson's research on expert performance confirms the same relationship between elite performance and coaching. He observed that the single most important difference between these amateurs and the three groups of elite performers is that the future elite performers seek out teachers and coaches and engage in supervised training, whereas the amateurs rarely engage in similar types of practice. An accountability partner will will positively impact your productivity. They'll keep you honest and on track. Just knowing that they are waiting for your next progress report can spur you to do better results or to better results. Ideally, a coach can coach you on how to maximize your performance over time. This is how the very best become the very best. Coaching will help you with all three commitments to your one thing, on the path to mastery, on the journey from E to P, and in living the accountability cycle, a coach is invaluable. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find elite achievers who don't have coaches helping them in key areas of their life. It's never too soon or too late to get a coach. Commit to achieving extraordinary results, and you'll find a, find a coach gives you the best chances possible. Big ideas from this chapter. Number one, commit to your best. Extraordinary results happen only when you give the best you have to become the best you can be at your most important work. This is, in essence, the path to mastery. And because mastery takes time, it takes a commitment to achieve it. 
Number two, be purposeful about your one thing. Move from E to P. Go on a quest for the models and systems that can take you further. Don't just settle for what comes naturally. Be open to new thinking, new skills, and new relationships. If the path of mastery is a commitment to your best, be purposeful. Being purposeful is a commitment to adopt the best possible approach. Number three, take ownership of your outcomes. If extraordinary results are what you want, being a victim won't work. Change occurs only when you're accountable. So stay out of the passenger seat and always choose the driver's side. Number four, find a coach. You'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who achieves extraordinary results without one. Remember, we're not talking about ordinary results. Extraordinary is what we're after. That kind of productivity eludes most, but it doesn't have to. When you time block your most important priority, protect your time block, and then work your time block as effectively as possible. You'll be as productive as you can be. You'll be living the power of the one thing. Now you just have to avoid getting hijacked. Chapter 17, The Four Thieves. In 1973, a group of seminary students unknowingly participated in a grand study known as the Good Samaritan Experiment. These students were recruited and divided into two groups to see what factors influenced whether or not they would help a stranger in distress. Some were told they were going to prepare to uh, talk about seminary jobs. The others, they were going to give a talk about a parable of the Good Samaritan, a a biblical story about helping people in need. Within each group, some were told they were late and had to hurry to their destination, while others were told they could take their time. What the students didn't know was that researchers had planted a man along the way, slumped on the ground, coughing, apparently in distress. In the end, fewer than half the students stopped to help. But the deciding factor wasn't the task. It was time. 90% of the students who were rushed failed to stop and render aid to the stranger. Some actually stepped over him in their hurry to get to where they were supposed to go. That's some cold shit, dude. It didn't seem to matter that half of them were on their way to, uh, to deliver a talk on helping others. That, the irony there is pretty, pretty thick. Now, if seminary students can so easily lose focus on their real priority, do the rest of us even have a prayer? Clearly, our best intentions can easily be undone. Just as there are the six lies that will deceive and mislead you, there are four thieves that can hold you up and rob you of your productivity. And since there's no one standing by to protect you, it's up to you to stop these thieves in their tracks. The four thieves of productivity. Number one, the inability to say no. Number two, fear of chaos. Number three, poor health habits. Number four, environment doesn't support your goals. Uh, But I think that's all of us, right? Jesus. Number one, inability to say no. Someone once told me that yes must be defended over by 1,000 no's. Early in my career, I didn't understand this at all. Today, I think it's an understatement. It's one thing to be distracted when you're trying to focus. It's another entirely to be hijacked before you even get to uh, hijacked before you even get to the way to protect what you've said yes to and stay productive is to say no to anything or anyone that could derail you. Peers will ask for your advice and help. Coworkers want you on their team. Friends will request your assistance. Strangers will seek you out. Invitations and interruptions will come at you from everywhere imaginable. How you handle all of this determines the time you'll be able to devote to your one thing and the results 
you're ultimately able to produce. Here's the thing. When you say yes to something, it's imperative that you understand what you're saying no to. Mm. Screenwriter Sidney Howard of Gone with the Wind fame advised, one half of knowing what you want is knowing what you must give up before you get it. In the end, the best way to succeed big is to go small. And when you go small, you say no a lot, a lot more than you might have ever considered before. No one knew how to go small better than Steve Jobs. He was famously as proud of the products he didn't pursue as he was of the transformative products Apple created. And the two years after his return in 1997, he took the company from 350 products to 10. That's 340 no's, not counting anything else proposed during the period. At the 1997 Macworld Developers Conference, he explained, when you think about focusing, you think, well, focusing is saying yes. No, focusing is about saying no. Jobs was, after extraordinary results, I knew there was only one way to get there. Jobs was a no man. The art of saying yes is, by default, the art of saying no. Saying yes to everyone is the same as saying yes to nothing. Each additional oblig- uh, obligation chips away your effectiveness at everything you try. So the more things you do, the less successful you are at any one of them. You can't please everyone, so don't try. In fact, when you try, the one person you absolutely won't please is yourself. Remember, saying yes to your one thing is your top priority. As long as you can keep this in perspective, saying no to anything else that keeps you from keeping your time blocked should become something you now accept. Then it's just a matter of how. All of us struggle to some degree with saying no. There are many reasons. We want to be helpful. We don't want to be hurtful. We want to be caring and considerate. We don't want to seem callous and cold. All this is totally understandable. Being needed is incredibly satisfying and helping others can be deeply fulfilling. Focusing on our own goals to the exclusion of others, especially the causes and the people we value the most, can feel downright selfish and self-centered, but it doesn't have to. Master marketer Seth Godin says, you can say no with respect, you can say no promptly, and you can say no with a lead to someone who might say yes, but just saying yes because you can't bear the short-term pain of saying no is not going to help you do the work. Godin gets it. You can't keep your yes and say no in a way that works for you and for others. Of course, whenever you need to say no, you can just say it and be done with it. There's nothing wrong with this at all. In fact, this should be your first choice every time. But if you feel there are times when you need to say no in a helpful way, there are many ways to to say it that can still lead people forward toward their goals. You can ask them a question that leads them to find the help they need elsewhere. You might suggest another approach that doesn't require any help at all. You might not know what else they could do, so you could help them by gently prompting them to get creative. You can politely redirect their request to others who might be better able to help them. Now, if you do end up saying yes, there are a variety of creative ways you can deliver it. In other words, you can leverage your yeses. Help desks, support centers, and information resources couldn't exist without this kind of strategic thinking. Print, uh, preprinted scripts, frequently asked questions, pages, or files. Man, I need to do all this shit. Garrett, we need to do this stuff. Uh, back to the book. Preprinted scripts, frequently asked questions or files, written explanations, recorded instructions, posted information, checklists, catalogs, directories, and pre-scheduled training classes can all be used to effectively say yes while still preserving your time block. I started doing this in my first job as sales manager. I leveraged training sessions to cut frequently asked questions off at the pass. 
and then by either printing or recording them, created a library of answers my team could access whenever I wasn't personally available. The biggest lesson I've learned is that it helps to have a philosophy and approach to managing my space. Over time, I develop what I refer to as the three-foot rule. When I hold out one of my arms as widely as possible from my neck to my fingers to my fingertips is three feet. I've made it my time managing mission to limit who can get within three feet of me. The rule is simple. A request must be connected to my one thing for me to consider it. If it's not, then I'll either say no to it or use any one of the approaches I shared above to deflect it elsewhere. Learning to say no isn't a recipe for being a recluse. Just the opposite. It's a way to gain the greatest freedom and flexibility possible. Your talent and abilities are limited resources. Your time is finite. You don't make your life about what you say yes to. Then if you don't make your life about what you say yes to, then it will almost certainly become what you intended to say no to. In a 1977 article in Ebony Magazine, the incredibly successful comedian Bill Cosby summed up this productivity thief perfectly. As he was building his career, Cosby read some advice that he took to heart. I don't know the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. This is advice worth living by. If you can't say no a lot, you'll never truly be able to say yes to achieving your one thing. Literally, it's one or the other, and you get to decide. When you give your one thing your most emphatic yes and vigorously say no to the rest, extraordinary results become possible. Coffee break. Number two, fear of chaos. A not so funny thing happens along the way to extraordinary results. Untidiness, unrest, disarray, disorder. Oh, maybe I'm not as fucked as I thought. Maybe it's just normal. I don't know. When we tirelessly work uh, our time block, clutter automatically takes up residence around us. Messes are inevitable when you focus on just one thing. While you whittle away on your most important work, the world doesn't sit and wait. It stays on fast forward and things just rack up and stack up while you bear down on on a singular priority. Unfortunately, there's no pause or stop button. You can't run life in slow motion. Wishing you could will just make you miserable and disappointed. One of the greatest thieves of productivity is an unwillingness to allow for chaos or the lack of creativity in dealing with it. Yes, I'm highlighting that. Focusing on one thing has a guaranteed consequence. Other things don't get done. Although that's exactly the point, it doesn't automatically make us feel any better about it. There will always be people and projects that simply aren't a part of your biggest single priority but still matter. You will feel them pressing for your attention. There will always be unfinished work and loose ends lying around to snare your focus. Your time block can feel like a submersible where the deeper you commit to your one thing, the more the pressure mounts for you to come up for air and address everything you've put on hold. Eventually, it can feel even the tiniest leak might trigger an all-out implosion. When this happens, when you give in to the pressure of the chaos being left unattended, it can be a total relief but not when it comes to productivity. It's a thief. The truth is it's a package deal. When you strive for greatness, chaos is guaranteed to show up. So you can't avoid it, man. In fact, other areas of your life may experience chaos in direct proportion to the time you put in on your one thing. It's important for you to accept this instead of fighting it. The Oscar-winning filmmaker Francis Ford 
Coppola warns us that anything you build on a large scale or with intense passion invites chaos. In other words, get used to it and get over it. Now, in anybody's life or work, there are some things that just can't be ignored. Family, friends, pets, personal commitments, or critical job projects. At any given time, you may have some or all of these tugging at your time block. You can't forego your power hours. That's a given. So what do you do? I get asked this a lot. I'll be teaching and know that as soon as I finish, hands are going to shoot up. What do I do if I'm a single parent with kids? I mean, these excuses. What if I have elderly, elderly parents who constantly depend on me? I have absolute obligations I must take care of. So what do I do? These are obviously fair questions, and here's what I tell them. Depending on your situation, your time block might initially look different from others. Each of your our situations is unique. Depending on where you are in your life, you may not be able to immediately block off every morning to be by yourself. You may have a kid or a parent in tow. You may be doing your time block at a daycare, a nursing home, or some other place you have to be. Your alone time may have to be at different time of the day for a while. You may have to trade off time with others so they protect your time block and you turn uh, protect theirs. You may even have kids or parents help you during the time block because they simply must be with you or you actually need the support. If you have to beg, then beg. If you have to barter, then barter. If you have to be creative, then be creative. Just don't be a victim of circumstances. Don't sacrifice your time block on the altar if I just can't make it work. My mom used to say, when you argue for your limitations, you get to keep them. But this is uh, one you can't afford. Figure it out. Find a way. Make it happen. When you commit to your one thing each day, extraordinary results ultimately occur. In time, this creates the income or opportunity to manage the chaos. So don't let this thief pickpocket your productivity. Move past your fears of chaos. Learn to deal with it and trust that your work on your one thing will come through for you. Number three. Poor health habits. I was once asked, if you don't take care of your body, where will you live? It was a real question. I had been fighting the painful side effects of interstitial, I'm not sure if I said that right, cystitis. I don't know. You don't want to know. And was dealing with uh, continually shaking legs, uh, debilitating side effects of cholesterol-fighting statins. My ability to function, much less focus, was extremely compromised. And the challenge to overcome this was daunting. My doctor gave me some options and asked me what I wanted to do. The answer was to change my health habits. It was then that I discovered one of the greatest lessons of extraordinary results. Personal energy mismanagement is a silent thief of productivity. When we keep borrowing against our future by poorly protecting our energy, there is a predictable outcome of either slowly running out of gas or prematurely crashing and burning. You see it all the time. When people don't understand the power of the one thing, they try to do too much. And because this never works over time, they end up making a horrific uh, deal with themselves. They go for success by sacrificing their health. They stay up late, miss meals, or eat poorly, and completely ignore exercise. Personal energy becomes an afterthought. Uh, Allowing health and home life to suffer becomes acceptable by default. Driven to hit goals, they think of cheating themselves as a good bet, but this gamble can't pay off. Not only does this approach consistently shortcut your best work, it's dangerous to assume that health and hearth will be just waiting for you to come back and enjoy it any time in the future. High achievement and extraordinary results require big energy. The trick is learning how to get it and keep it. So what can you do? 
Think of yourself as an amazing biological machine you are and consider this daily energy plan for high productivity. Begin early with uh, meditation and prayer for spiritual energy. Starting the day by connecting with your higher purpose aligns your thoughts and actions with a larger story. Then move straight to the kitchen for your most important meal of the day and the cornerstone of physical energy, a nutritious breakfast designed to fuel your day's work. You can't run long on empty calories and you can't run on at all an empty tank. Figure out easy ways to eat right and then plan all of your daily meals a week at a time. Fueled up, head to your exercise spot to relieve stress and strengthen your body. Conditioning gives you maximum capacity, which is critical for maximum productivity. If you have a limited time to exercise, the simple thing to do is to wear a pedometer. Toward the end of the day, if you haven't walked at least 10,000 steps, make it your one exercise thing to reach 10,000 step goals before you go to bed. This one habit will change your life. Now, if you haven't spent time with your loved ones at breakfast or during your workout, go find them. Hug, talk, and laugh. You'll be reminded why you're working in the first place and motivated to be as productive as possible so you can get home earlier. Productive people thrive on emotional energy. It fills their hearts with joy and makes them light on their feet. Next, grab your calendar and plan your day. Make sure you know what matters most and make sure those things are going to get done. Look at what you have to do. Estimate the time it will take to do them and plan your time accordingly. Knowing what you must do and making the time to do it is how you bring the most amazing mental energy to your life. Calendaring your day this way frees your mind from worrying about what might not get done while inspiring you with what will. It's only when you make time for extraordinary results that they get a chance to show up. Damn, that's savage right there. Highlighting that. When you get to work, go to work on your one thing. It's like me. If you're like me and you have some morning priorities you must get done first, then give yourself an hour at most to do them. Don't loiter and don't slow down. Clear the decks and then get down to the business of doing what matters most. Around noon, take a break, have lunch, and turn your attention to everything else you can do before you head out for the day. Last, in the evening, when it's time for bed, get eight hours of sleep. Powerful engines need cooling down and resting before taking off again, and you're no different. You need your sleep so your mind and body can rest and recharge for tomorrow's extraordinary productivity. Anyone you know who gets little sleep and appears to be doing great is either a freak of nature or hiding its effects from you. It's amazing how much older I get. I need more sleep. I remember the days where I didn't need hardly any, right? I think I was doing exactly what he was talking about. Back to the book. Either way, they aren't your role model. Protect your sleep by determining when you must go to bed each night and don't allow yourself to be lured away from it. If you're committed to your wake-up time, you can stay up late only so many nights before you're forced to hit the hay at a decent hour. If your response is that you have too much to do, stop right now, go back to the beginning of this book, and start over. You apparently missed something. (laughs) Gary. When uh, you've connected proper sleep with success, do we want to go back and start again or should we finish it? I'll let you take a vote. Let's finish it. Maybe you need to go back and listen to it again. In fact, just leave right now and go do that. Back to the book. When you've connected proper sleep with success, you'll have a good enough reason to get up and you'll go to sleep at the right time. The highly productive person's daily energy plan. Number one, meditate and pray for spiritual energy like to see you measure that number two eat right exercise and sleep sufficiently for physical energy 
Number three, hug, kiss, and laugh with loved ones for emotional energy. Number four, set goals, plan, and calendar for mental energy. Mental energy. Number five, time block your one thing for business energy. Yes, 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 yes. Back to the book. Here's the productivity secret of this plan. When you spend the early hours energizing yourself, you get pulled through the rest of the day with little additional effort. You're not focused on having a perfect day all day, but on having an energized start to each day. If you can have a highly productive day until noon, the rest of the day falls easily into place. That positive energy creating positive momentum. Structuring the early hours of each day is the simplest way to extraordinary results. Number four, environment doesn't support your goals. Early in my career, a married mom of two teenagers sat in front of me and cried. Her family had told her they would support her new career as long as nothing at home changed. Meals, carpooling, anything that touched their world couldn't be disrupted. She had agreed only to discover later how bad a deal she'd cut. As I listened, I suddenly realized I was hearing about a productivity thief almost everyone overlooks. Your environment must support your goals. Your environment is simply who you see and what you experience every day. The people are familiar. The place is comfortable. You trust these elements of your environment and quite possibly even take them for granted. But be aware, anyone and anything at any time can become a thief, diverting your attention away from your most important work and stealing your productivity right from under your nose. For you to achieve extraordinary results, the people surrounding you and your physical surroundings must support your goals. No one lives or works in isolation. Every day, throughout your day, you come in contact with others and are influenced by them. Unquestionably, these individuals impact your attitude, your health, and ultimately your performance. The people around you may or the people around you may be more important than you think. It's a fact you're likely to pick up some of the attitude the others you're working with, socializing with, or simply being around them. I've noticed this. They say you're the your income is the average of the Five people you spend the most time with, something like that. Back to the book. From coworkers to friends to family, if they're generally not positive or fulfilled on the job or away from it, they're probably passed on some of their negativity. Attitude is contagious. It spreads easily. As strong as you think you are, no one is strong enough to avoid the influence of negativity forever. So surrounding yourself with the right people is the right thing to do. While attitude thieves will rob you of energy, effort, and resolve, supporting people will do what they can to encourage or assist you. Ultimately, being with success-minded people creates what researchers call a positive spiral of success, where they lift you up and send you on your way. Who you hang out with has serious implications for your health habits. Harvard professor Dr. Nicholas A. Christakis of University of California, San Diego, Associate Professor James H. Fowler wrote the book on how our social networks unmistakably impact our well-being. Their book, Connected, The Surprising Power of Our Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, connects the dots between our relationships and drug use, sleeplessness, smoking, drinking, eating, and even happiness. For instance, their 2007 study on obesity revealed that if one of your close friends becomes obese, you're 57% more likely to do the same. Why? people we tend to set our standard the people we see tend to set our standard for what's appropriate in time you begin to think act and even look a little like those you hang out with but not only do their attitudes and health habits influence you their relative success does too if people if the people you spend time with are high achievers their achievements can influence your own 
A study featured in the psychology journal Social Development shows that out of 500 school-aged participants with reciprocal best friend relationships, children who establish and maintain relationships with high-achieving students experience gains in their report cards, report card grades. Further, those who have high-achieving friends appear to benefit with regard to their motivational beliefs and academic performance. Hanging out with people who seek success will strengthen your motivation and positively push your performance. Your mother was right when she cautioned you to be careful about the company you keep. The wrong people in your environment can most certainly dissuade, detour, and distract you from the productivity course you're set out on. But the opposite is also true. No one succeeds alone and no one fails alone. Pay attention to the people around you. Highlighting that. Seek out those who won't support your goals and show the door to anyone who won't. The individuals in your life will influence you and impact you probably more than you give them credit for. Give them their due and make sure that the sway they have on you sends you in the direction you want to go. If people are the first priority in creating a supportive environment, place isn't far behind. When your physical environment isn't in step with your goals, it can also keep you from ever getting started on them in the first place. I know this sounds oversimplified, but to succeed at doing your one thing, you have to be able to get to it, and your physical environment plays a vital role in whether you do or not. The wrong surroundings may never let you get there. If your environment is so full of distractions and diversions that before you can help, you got yourself caught doing something you shouldn't, you won't get where you need to go. Think of it as having to walk down an aisle of candy every day when you're trying to lose weight. Some may be able to handle this easily, but most of us are going to sample some sweets along the way. What is around you will either aim you toward your time block or pull you away. This starts from the time you wake up and continues until your time block until your time block bunker. When you see and hear from the time your alarm rings to when your time block begins ultimately determines if you get there, where when you get there, and whether you're ready to be productive when you do. So do a trial run. Walk through the path you'll take each day and eradicate all the sight and sound thieves you that you find. For me, at home, it's simple things like email, the morning paper, the morning TV news shows, the neighbors walking out, uh, walking their dogs. All wonderful things, but not wonderful when I have an appointment with myself to accomplish my one thing. So I check off email quickly. I never see the paper. I keep the TV cabinet closed, and I choose my driving route carefully. At work, I avoid the community coffee pot and the information boards. They can come later in the day. What I've learned is that when you clear the path to success, that's when you consistently get there. Something I do that I learned from the Navy is I set out everything and I plan out my day before. And I don't do it all the time, but I do it almost all the time. I set out my clothes. It was one of those things where I wasn't late, um, but people, one of the reasons I wasn't late was because of this. And I had a chief who said, yeah, you get prepared for the next day. So if you do wake up late, you have things already prepared. You've saved time in advance. You've planned for a worst case scenario. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Back to the book. Don't let your environment lead you astray. Your physical surroundings matter and the people around you matter. Having an environment that doesn't support your goals is all too common and unfortunately all too common thief for productivity. As actor and comedian Lily Tomlin once wrote, the road to success is always under construction. So don't allow yourself to be detoured from getting from getting to your one thing. 
pave your way with the right people in place. Big ideas. Number one, start saying no. I know I need to do that. Always remember that when you say yes to something, you're saying no to everything else. It is, it's the essence of keeping a commitment. Start turning down other requests outright and saying no for now to distractions so that nothing deter, uh, detracts from your getting to your top priority. Learn to, learning to say no can and will liberate you. It's how you'll find the time for your one thing. Number two, accept chaos. Recognize that pursuing your one thing moves other things to the back burner. L- loose ends can feel like snares, creating tangles in your path. This kind of chaos is unavoidable. Make peace with it. Learn to deal with it. The success you have accomplishing your one thing will continually prove you've made the right decision. Number three, manage your energy. Don't sacrifice your health by trying to take on too much. Your body is an amazing machine, but it doesn't come with a warranty. You can't trade it in, and repairs can be costly. It's important to manage your energy so you can do what you must do and achieve what you want to achieve and live the life you want to live. Number four, take ownership of your environment. Make sure that the people around you and your physical surroundings support your goals. The right people in your life and the right physical environment on your daily path will support your goals to get you your one thing. When both are in alignment with your one thing, they will supply the optimism and physical lift you need to make your one thing happen. Screenwriter Leo Rostin, Rostin, R-O-S-T-E-N, hope I said that right, pulled everything together for us when he said, I cannot believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. I think the purpose of life is to be useful, to be responsible, to be compassionate. It is above all to matter, to count, to stand for something, to have made some difference that you lived at all. Live with purpose, live by priority, live for productivity. Follow these three for the same reason you make the three commitments and avoid the four thieves. Because you want to leave your mark. You want your life to matter. Coffee break. How you guys doing? I am still a little sick, so I apologize. Chapter 18. You can also hear my damn dogs in the background. How about we lay down and go to sleep while I'm reading so we're going to hear your pitter-patter pause every time you walk. Chapter 18, The Journey. I'm catching this podcast up at home. I apologize. One step at a time might uh, may be trite, but it's still true. No matter the objective, no matter the destination, the journey to anything you want always starts with a single step. That step is called the one thing. I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. Well, I can't because I'm going to read this book to you, but do it while you're at home. All right. I want you to close your eyes and imagine your life as big as it can possibly be, as big as you've ever dared dream and then some. Can you see it? Now open your eyes and listen to me. Whatever you can see, you have the capacity to move toward. And when what you go for is as vast as you can possibly envision, you'll be living the biggest life you possibly can. Living large is that simple. Let me share a way you can do this. Write down your current income, then multiply it by a number, 2, 4, 10, 20. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. Multiply your income by it and write down the new number. Looking at it and ignoring whether you're frightened or excited, ask yourself, will my current actions get me to this number in the next five years? If they will, then keep doubling the number until they won't. If you can make your if you can make your actions match your answer, you'll be living large. Now, I use personal earnings only as an example. This thinking can apply to your spiritual life, your physical conditioning, your personal relationships, your career achievement, your business success, or anything else that matters to you. When you lift the limits of your thinking, 
you expand the limits of your life. It's only when you can imagine a bigger life that you can ever hope to have one. The challenge is that living the largest life possible requires you not only to think big, but also take the necessary actions to get there. Extraordinary results require you to go small. Getting your focus as small as possible simply uh, simplifies your thinking and crystallizes what you must do. No matter how big you can think, when you know where you're going and work backwards to what you need to do to get there, you'll always discover it begins with going small. Years ago, I wanted an apple tree on our property. It turns out you can't buy a fully mature one. The only option I had was to buy a small one and grow it. Sorry about that. So I did. Um, a small one and grow it. I could think big, but I had no choice but to start small. I could think big, but I had no choice but to start small. So I did. And five years later, we had apples. But because I thought as big as I could, guess what? You got it. I didn't just plant one. Today, we have an orchard. Your life is like this. You don't get a fully mature one. You get a small one and the opportunity to grow it. Man, I like that. I'm going to highlight that. Sorry about my dogs in the background. And they don't seem to give a fuck either. They're dogs. Back to the book. Think small and your life's likely to stay that way. Think big and your life has a chance to grow big. The choice is yours. When you choose a big life, by default, you'll have to go small to get there. Your, you must survey your choices, narrow your options, line up your priorities, and do what matters most. You must go small. You must find your one thing. There is no surefire thing, but there's always something, one thing that out of everything matters more than anything else. I'm not saying there will only be one thing or even the same thing forever. I'm saying that at any moment in time, there can only be one thing. And when the one thing is in line with your purpose and sits atop your priorities, it will be the most productive thing you can do to launch you toward the best you can be. Actions build on action. Habits build on habits. Success builds on success. The right domino knocks down another and another and another. So so whenever you want extraordinary results, look for the levered action that will start a domino run for you. Big lives ride the powerful wave of chain reactions and are built sequentially, which means when you're aiming for success, you can't skip to the end. Extraordinary doesn't work like that. The knowledge and momentum that build that build the knowledge and momentum that build as you live the one thing each day, each week, each month, and each year are what give you the ability to build an extraordinary life. But this doesn't just happen. You have to make it happen. One evening, an elder Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside all people. He said, my son, the battle is between the two wolves inside us. One is fear. It carries anxiety, concern, uncertainty, hesitancy, indecision, and inaction. The other is faith. It brings calm, conviction, confidence, enthusiasm, decisiveness, excitement, and action. The grandson thought about it for a moment and then meekly asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? The old Cherokee replied, the one you feed. Your journey toward extraordinary results will build above all, will be built above all else on faith. It's only when you have faith in your purpose and priorities you'll seek out the one thing. And once certain you'll know it, you'll have the personal power necessary to push through any hesitancy to it, to do it. Faith ultimately leads to action. And when we take action, we avoid the very thing that could undermine or undo everything we've worked for. Regret. Advice from a friend. 
And as satisfying as succeeding is, as fulfilling as journeying feels, there is actually one even better reason to get up every day and take action on your one thing. On your way to living a life worth living, doing your best to succeed at what matters most to you not only rewards you with success and happiness, but with something even more precious, no regrets. If you can go back in time and talk to the 18-year-old you or leap forward and visit the 80-year-old you, who would you want to take advice from? It's an interesting proposition. For me, it would be my older self. The view from the stern comes uh, with the wisdom gathered from the long and, from a longer and wider lens. So what would an older, wiser you say? Go live your life. Live it fully without fear. Live with purpose. Give it your all and never give up. Effort is important, for without it, you will never succeed at your highest level. Achievement is important, for without it, you will never experience your true potential. Pursuing purpose is important, for unless you do, you may never find lasting happiness. Step out on faith that these things are true. Go live a life worth living in the end, and you'll be able to say, I'm glad I did, not I wish I had. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride, right? Back to the book. Why do I think this? Because many years ago, I began trying to understand what a life worth living would look like. I decided to go out and discover what this might be. It was a trip worth taking. I visited with people older than me, wiser than me, more successful than me. I researched. I read. I sought advice from every credible source imaginable. I looked for clues and signs. Ultimately, I stumbled on a simple point of view. A life worth living might be measured in many ways, but the one way that stands above all others is a, is living a life of no regrets. You want to get to shoulda, woulda, coulda, do you? 80? I shoulda, woulda, coulda done all those things. Now I'm dying a fucking loser. Back to the book. Life is too short to pile up woulda, coulda, shouldas. Damn, there they are right there. <laughs> I just was a little impatient. I didn't get to it, did I? What clinched this for me was when I asked myself who might be the people with the greatest clarity about life. I decided it was those who were nearing the end of theirs. If starting with the end in mind is a good idea, then there's no end further than the very end of life to look for clues about how to live. I wondered what people with nothing left to do but look back might tell me about how to move forward. Their collective voice was overwhelming. The answer clear. Live your life to minimize regrets you might have at the end. What kind of regrets? For me, very few books cause tears, much less require a handkerchief, but Bronnie Ware's 2012 book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, did both. Ware spent many years caring for those facing their own mortality. When she questioned the dying about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, Bronnie found the common theme serviced again and again. The five most common were these, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Too late, they realize happiness is a choice. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. Too often, they failed to give them the time and effort they deserved. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Too frequently, shut mouths and shutter feelings way too heavy to handle. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Too much time spent making a living over building a life caused too much remorse. As tough as these were, one stood out. Above them all, the most common regret was this. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. How many of us do that? Let 
I stopped that a long time ago, but I wasted a lot of years. Back to the book. Half filled with dreams and unfilled hopes. This was the number one regret expressed by the dying. As Ware put it, most people had not honored even half of their dreams and had the dying knowing that it was due to the choices they had made or not made. Brownie Ware's observations aren't hers alone. At the conclusion of their exhaustive research, Gilovich and Medvik in 1994 wrote, When people look back on their lives, it is the things they have not done that generate the greatest regret. People's actions may be troublesome initially. It is their inactions that plague them most with long-term feelings of regret. Honoring our hopes and pursuing productive lives through faith in our purpose and priorities is a message from our elders. From the wisest position they'll ever have comes their clearest message, no regrets. So make sure every day you do what matters most. When you know what matters most, everything makes sense. When you don't know what matters most, anything makes sense. The best lives aren't led this way. Gotta know what you want, know what you don't want, right? Success is an inside job. So how do you live a life of no regrets? The same way your journey to extraordinary results begins. With purpose, priority, and productivity, with the knowledge that regret must be avoided and can be with your one thing at the top of your mind and the top of your schedule, with a single first step we can all take. I believe the best way to share this is this story. One evening, a young boy hopped up in his father's lap and whispered, Dad, whispered, Dad, we don't spend enough time together. The father, who dearly loved his son, knew in his heart this was true and replied, You're right, and I'm so sorry, but I promise I'll make it up to you. Since tomorrow is Saturday, why don't we spend the entire day together, just you and I? It was a plan. The boy went to bed that night with a smile on his face, envisioning the day, excited about the adventurous possibilities with his pops. The next morning, the father rose earlier than usual. He wanted to make sure he could still enjoy his ritual cup of coffee with his morning newspaper before his son woke, wound up, and ready to go. Lost in thought, reading the business section, he was caught by surprise when suddenly his son pulled the newspaper down and enthusiastically shouted, Dad, I'm up. Let's play. The father, although thrilled to see his son and eager to start the day together, found himself guiltily craving just a little bit more time to finish his morning routine. Quickly racking his brain, he hit upon a promising idea. He grabbed his son, gave him a huge hug, and announced that their first game would be to put a puzzle together, and when that was done, we'll head outside to play for the rest of the day. Earlier in his reading, he had seen a full-page ad with a picture of the world. He quickly found it, tore it into little pieces, and spread them out on the table. He found some tape for his son and said, I want to see how fast you can put this puzzle together. The boy enthusiastically dove right in, while his father, confident that he had now bought some extra time, buried himself back in his paper. Within minutes, the boy once again yanked down his father's newspaper and proudly announced, Dad, I'm done. The father was astonished. For, for what lay in front of him, whole, intact, and complete was the picture of the world, back together as it was in the ad and not a single piece out of place. In a voice mixed with parental pride and wonder, the father asked, How on earth did you do that so fast? The young boy beamed. It was easy, Dad. I couldn't do it at first, and I started to give up. It was so hard, but then I dropped a piece on the floor, and because it was a glass top table, when I looked up, I saw it was a picture of a man on the other side. That gave me an idea. When I put the man together... The world just fell into place. I first heard this innocent narrative when I was a teenager, and I've never been able to shake it. It became a tale I continually retell in my head, and ultimately a central theme in my life. What struck me isn't 
the apparent issue with life balance the father had, though I certainly got that. What grabbed me and stuck with me was the inspired solution of the son. He cracked a deeper code, a simple, more straightforward approach to life, a starting point for any challenge we personally or profession we face personally or professionally. The one thing we must all understand if we are able to achieve extraordinary results at our highest level possible, undoubtedly, unquestionably, success is an inside job. Put yourself together and your world falls into place. When you bring purpose to your life, know your priorities and achieve high productivity on the priority that matters the most every day, your life makes sense and the extraordinary becomes possible. All success in life starts with you. You know what to do. You know how to do it. Your next step is simple. You are the first domino. Putting the one thing to work. So what now? You've read the book. You get it. Or I guess I read you the book. You should read the book too. You're ready to experience extraordinary results in your life. So what do you do? How do you tap into one thing in the most powerful way? Let's revisit the heart of the book and look at the ways you can put the one thing to work right now. For brevity's sake, I'll shorten the focusing question. So be sure to add such that by doing it, everything will be easier or unnecessary at the end of each sentence. So this does get a little repetitive, but I'm going to read it anyway. Because it's a good point. It's good. It illustrates the point, right? I may need a little coffee break here. All right. Hold on. Here I go. I mentioned Always Brewing Detroit. Go to alwaysbrewingdetroit.com. You know what? You know what we serve there? Hazano's Coffee from Ferndale on East Nine Mile. coffee so good it'll make you believe in god all right your personal life let the one thing bring clarity to the key areas of your life here's a short sampling what's the one thing i can do this week to discover or affirm my life's purpose what's the one thing i can do in 90 days to get in the physical shape i want what's the one thing i can do today to strengthen my spiritual faith what's the one thing i could do to find time to practice the guitar 20 minutes a day Knock five strokes off my golf game in 90 days. Learn to paint in six months. Your family. Use the one thing with your family for fun and rewarding experiences. Here are some options. What's the one thing we can do this week to improve our marriage? What's the one thing we can do every week to spend more quality time together? What's the one thing we can do tonight to support our kids' schoolwork? What's the one thing we can do to make our next vacation the best ever? Our next Christmas the best ever? Thanksgiving the best ever. Smoke everything. Just kidding. Please know that these are, I'm not just kidding, smoke everything. Please know that these are simply examples. If they apply to you personally, then great. If not, then use them to prompt you to discover what areas you might explore that matter to you. And don't forget time blocking. Time block with yourself to make sure that the things that matter get done and the activities that matter get mastered. In some cases, you'll want to block time to find your answer. And other times, you'll just need to block time to implement it. Now, let's go to work and see how you might take the power of the one thing with you, your job. Put the one thing to work, taking your professional life to the next level. Here are a few ways to get started. What's the one thing I can do today to complete my current project ahead of schedule? What's the one thing I can do this month to produce better work? What's the one thing I can do before my next review to get the raise I want? What's the one thing I can do every day to finish my work and still get home on time? Your work team. Pull the one thing into your work with others. 
Whether you're a manager, executive, or even a business owner, bring one thing thinking into your everyday work situations to drive productivity upward. Here are some scenarios to consider. In any meeting, ask, what's the one thing we can accomplish in this meeting and end early? I love the sound of that. Not go to the meeting. In building your team, ask, what's the one thing I could do in the next six months to find and develop incredible talent? In planning for the next month, year, or five years, ask, what's the one thing I can do right now to accomplish our goals ahead of schedule and under budget? In your department or at your highest company level, ask, what's the one thing we can do in the next 90 days to create a one-thing culture? Again, these are merely examples to get you thinking about the possibilities. And just as in your personal life, once you've decided what matters most, professional time blocking becomes your way of making sure it gets done. At work, this is usually about either a short-term project you must uh, complete or an ongoing long-term activity you're committed to doing repeatedly. No matter, an appointment with yourself is the surest path to ensuring your achievement, you achieve extraordinary results. Sorry, I missed a word there. Casual open discussions or short in-house workshops around key concepts in the book might really help everyone at work find their understanding and get on the same page. Um, If implementing the one thing in the area requires you to involve others, consider getting them their own copy of this book. Sharing your ahas is a great start, and you may be happily surprised with the insights you get back when others have a chance to read the book on their own. Keep in mind that it takes more than reading the book and a few conversations or mentions in a meeting to make the one thing a new habit in your life or the lives of those around you. You know from reading the book that it takes on average 66 days to create a new habit. So approach this accordingly. To ignite your life, you must focus on one thing long enough for it to catch on fire. Let's look at a few areas where the one thing might make a real difference. Your nonprofit. What's the one thing we can do to fund our annual financial needs? Serve twice as many people. Double our number of volunteers. Your school. What's the one thing we can do to decrease our dropout rate to zero? Raise our test scores by 20%. Increase our graduation rate to 100%. Double our parent participation. Your place of worship. What's the one thing we can do to improve our worship experience, double our mission, outreach success, max out our attendance, achieve our financial goals? Your community. What's the one thing you can do to impose your sense of community? Help the homebound, double our volunteerism, double voter turnout. After my wife read this book, I asked her to do something. She turned to me, and you know what she said? Gary, that's not my one thing right now. We laughed, high-fived, and I got to do it myself. The one thing forces you to think big, work things through to create a list, prioritize that list so that the geometric progression can happen, and then hammer away on the first thing, the one thing that starts your domino run. So be prepared to live a new life. And remember that the secret to extraordinary results is to ask a very big and specific question that leads you to one very small and tightly focused answer. I'm going to highlight that. I just can't ever get enough of it. If you try to do everything, you wind up with nothing. If you try to do just one thing, the right one thing, you could wind up with everything you ever wanted. The one thing is real. If you put it to work, it will work. So don't delay. Ask yourself the question, what's the one thing I can do right now to start using the one thing in my life such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? And make doing the answer your first one thing onward. I think Gary Keller signs it. And this is 
the book on the research. Although I have lived the lessons of this book for some time, we began researching the one thing in earnest in 2008. Since then, we've archived a collection of well over a thousand scholarly articles, scientific studies and academic papers, hundreds of newspapers and magazine articles, and a large library of books written by the foremost experts in their fields, binder after binder of discoveries, facts, anecdotes, and literally covered every inch of our writing space. If you want to dive deeper into what you've learned from this book, you can find an extensive list of our references organized by topic and by chapter at theonething.com. And the one thing is just the number one. The website is a is a gateway into our minds. We mentioned the authors who have inspired us, provided links to articles that are available online and list those white papers that educated our thinking. We've also thrown in some additional interesting factoids and even a fun video here and there. Enjoy the journey. All right. You ready? That's the end of it, man. What'd you guys think? What'd you think? I'm glad I did it. Wasn't sure about how to do this at first. Let's go back and do a little review. So we're going to start back at chapter 16. The three commitments to your one thing. Number one, commit to following a path of mastery. Number two, move from E to P, entrepreneurial to purposeful, right? Number three, live the accountability cycle. It's not a random number. That's the amount of time you need to time block every day for your one thing. This is in reference to the four hours he was talking about. More than anything else, expertise tracks with hours invested. Time on task over time eventually beats talent every time. Oh, I've got to read that again. You know, you know how many questions I get about this? I'm thinking about one young gentleman right here. But I remember, especially if you're younger, right? At least I know what it's like to be a young male. Know it all. I can do anything. What do you know? What does everybody else think about me? He, she has something X, Y, Z better. So you remember that time on task over time eventually beats talent every time. Also, the pursuit of mastery bears gifts. So you're not just mastering one thing bleeds over into other areas of your life. Knowledge begets knowledge and skills build on skills. It's what makes future dominoes fall more easily. We can only do one thing at a time. Do it well. And when we master things, they bleed over into other parts of life. The path of mastering something is a combination of not only doing the best you can do at it, but also doing it the best it can be done. A good one. Taking complete ownership of your outcomes by holding no one but yourself responsible for them is the most powerful thing you can do to drive your success. And if you feel like this is your problem, you need to go do extreme, um, buy the book Extreme Ownership by um, Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin. That's that. This book, all, that book's all about that. That doesn't mean that, yeah, you caused it, but you're, you're, you're taking responsibility, right? Economy's bad, still going to make money. You know, that's the idea, right? Accountable people are results-oriented and never defend actions, skill levels, models, systems, or relationships that just aren't getting the job done. This was a huge, like most of my life, 
how many of you make excuses for the for the people around you, the family members, your friends, your bad boss or whatever, right? Call them syncophants. You maybe adhere to a system. You ignore the evidence. Accountable people are results-oriented and never defend actions. This might be why you resist tracking too, by the way. A little cognitive dissonance. You don't want to realize how much the people suck around you. Or you don't want to realize how much you suck by measuring it, right? Because if you don't measure it, maybe you're not. Kind of like the ostrich sticking their head in the sand. Accountable people achieve results others only dream of. If it's to be, it's up to me, she thinks. Circumstances won't change by themselves, she thinks, so let's get on with it. I feel that way all the time. Highly successful people are clear about their role and the events of their life. They don't fear reality. They seek it, acknowledge it, and own it. There's an amazing podcast, probably multiple podcasts coming. All right, chapter 17. The four thieves of productivity. Number one, inability to say no. Number two, fear of chaos. Number three, poor health habits. Number four, environment doesn't support your goals. When you say yes to something, it's imperative that you understand what you're saying no to. And all he's talking about there is since we can't do everything, every time we say yes to something, we're saying no to everything else, right? You can't please everyone, so don't try. I get this a lot, right? Like, Jeremy, you know, you swear on your marketing or you you do all these things. You're trying, you know, not everybody is trying or, or only have 100 people on your list. You, no, 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 you don't need everybody. You just need a few. One of the greatest thieves of productivity is the unwillingness to allow for chaos or the lack of creativity in dealing with it. Maybe I'm closer than I thought because my life is fucking chaos right now. When you strive for greatness, chaos is guaranteed to show up. I don't know if I'm striving for greatness, but chaos showed up. High achievement and extraordinary results require big energy. The trick is learning how to get it and keep it. This is something I have plenty of energy. I'm very lucky in this manner. I don't have to try. Um, I think I do need to manage it a lot better and not take it for granted. And I do have a tendency to just throw myself, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do more, but I'm kind of running out of that. So I need to leverage myself, which is what I'm working on next week. It's only when you make time for extraordinary results that you get a chance to show up. This is about time blocking, right? If there's no time in your life. Not going to happen. The highly productive person's daily energy plan. Number one, meditate and pray for spiritual energy. Uh, you got to prove to me that spiritual energy exists, but I get what he's saying, right? Take a moment to yourself, meditate. I do a 10-minute um, or I attempt to do a 10-minute uh, mindfulness exercise, meditation in the morning. I'll let you guys believe all the other mumbo-jumbo. Number two, eat right, exercise, and sleep sufficiently for physical energy. I can do much better at this, and I need to. Number three, hug, kiss, and laugh with loved ones for emotional energy. Number four, set goals, plan, and calendar for mental energy. Number five, time block your one thing for business energy. Your environment must support your goals, right? What's that one? I think I saw a meme. I can't remember exactly what it was, but something along the lines of um, before you, was it like, 
before you go see a doctor about depression, make sure you're not surrounded by assholes, you know, kind of the one thing, right? So if your environment, like maybe you're, you're, I do a daily group podcast too. And we kind of, we have these two um, fake agents that we made up that we kind of like pin all the bad attributes of agents on. And when we play this, we play these kind of assholeish, over the top characters. Anyway, they call them Betty and Barry and they just, constantly trying to set the bar low, you know, are you surrounded by Betty's and berries by people who just like crabs in a bucket, trying to pull you back down, either your work, your church, your home, your, your friends or whatever is your physical environment. Like you want to work out, but you have no space to work out. You want to study, but your table is full of shit. So you can't sit down and study. You want to read a book that you can't find. This is the point he's making on these things, right? No one succeeds alone and no one fails alone. Pay attention to the people around you. You're not going to do it alone. So if people are trying to tear you down, you're very unlikely to achieve your goals. Um, what I've learned is that when you clear the path to success, that's when you consistently get there. And this is not just a physical thing. This is a mental thing, right? So you, you have time in your day to do these things and you plan. You plan ahead to do these things, right? It's like setting your clothes out the day before. It's like keeping your kitchen table clean so you have a place. It's like going grocery shopping um, and creating a, a food plan the week before so you don't just go out and eat the shit food, right? You have to plan these things. You got to clear your path for success so you don't waste your willpower from the earlier chapters on the shit that doesn't matter. And I highlight the whole number three, manage your energy, just because I think it applies so much to me. Don't sacrifice your health by trying to take on too much. Your body is an amazing machine, but it doesn't come with a warranty. You can't trade it in, and repairs can be costly. It's important to manage your energy so you can do what you must do and achieve what you want to achieve and live the life you want to live. All right, now we're on Chapter 18. Your life is like this. You don't get a fully mature one. This is in reference to you can't buy a fully mature apple tree. You get a small one and the opportunity to grow it if you want to. You can't just arrive. I'm glad I did, not I wish I had. This is in reference to regrets. And that the one thing that most people do, they, they don't regret the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. A life worth living might be measured in many ways, but the one way that stands above all others is living a life of no regrets. Um, in reference to the, the most common regret of people dying, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I'm thinking of a few people here, too, demanding families, you know, trying to make you live lives they wish they had lived. How about you go live your own fucking life and I'll live mine? When you don't know what matters most, anything makes sense. The best lives aren't led this way. So kind of like uh, if you don't know where you're going, why do you care where you're at or which direction? Yeah, I don't care where I'm going. Well, guess what? And of course, success is an inside job and you are your first domino, sir or ma'am. And then here we're at the very end, kind of like an epilogue or whatever. And remember that the secret to extraordinary results is to ask a very big and specific question that leads you to one very small and tightly focused answer. And that's it. So 
I think I initially said this would be a six-part series. I think it's going to be a five-part. So we just went through the first four parts, and we read the whole book. And at the end of each chapter, we read the parts I highlighted. So I think for number five is I'm going to go back, and I'm going to read all the highlighted parts again. Uh, Mostly it's just a reminder to me, too, but also... Maybe you don't want to listen to all four again. We just go back and listen to the highlighted parts, right? Just as like, uh, I don't know, at least the parts I highlighted. Maybe you should do the same thing too, review them while we're doing it. But, you know, just like having a little cheat sheet or uh, like flashcards or but like an audio flashcard, you know, a reduction. The cream of the cream, the cream of the crop. We'll have to cream rise and do that. I hope you guys enjoyed this. So we'll do part five next week. Um. And guys, if you haven't already, guys and gals, if you haven't already, rate and review on iTunes. I know it's a pain in the ass um, to do, and they don't make it easy, but that's one of the ways you can really help me out. Also, share these podcasts. Got a couple of people sharing them on LinkedIn, ton of you sharing them on Facebook and all that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And when I see it, I will say thank you. Um, If you share it from the Facebook fan page or one of my podcast partners page, I will see it. But just share it. And if I don't see it, just know that I appreciate it. And thank you. If you have any comments, uh, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. Interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. And on Facebook, you go to events, you go to that Facebook page and you go to events. You can hit subscribe and never miss one. Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. Go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. And I am going to put the link to episode 22 where we talk about goals and habits and tracking. We're coming up on 2017 the next week. I hope you're spending some time working on your goals, planning out um, you know what you did well in 2016, what you didn't do well. What do you want to do differently in 2017? Tracking, how you can break it down. And uh, I want to encourage you to do that, man. I know I do this stuff every week, uh, but it's important, man. I know there's distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, bad starts in life, loser parents. Man, you're responsible for your life, dude. Stick with it. Pick some goals. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And I do want to thank you for listening. I really do appreciate your attention. Um, I know you could be doing lots of other things right now. I know there's lots of podcasts, so thank you. And... Merry Christmas. Until the next podcast, fucking crush it.